Welcome to the Voices from the Northeast podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Paul. And I'm Justine. And we tell stories from the northeast of England. Stories from the past. Stories from the present. Do we tell stories from the future? No, we're not that good. Ah, okay. Welcome everybody to the Voices from the Northeast podcast. Morning, podcasters. You know, I was born in North Seaton Colliery. When I, when I were a lad, I should have remembered that because my mother used to work for them. I'm champion for me, absolutely fine. And who doesn't make the selection box for breakfast? Hey, that was Christmas. Yeah. 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 She went flying over Maypole into Bustelli. This podcast started as a lockdown project during the first 2020 COVID-19 lockdown. Started with me chatting to friends and family about life in and around the town of Ashton from the 1950s through to the 1970s. Now as we move through series five, we're refreshing the format a little bit because of the amazing opportunities that the show has afforded us. The first change is, well, it's the fabulous co-host that I have sat opposite me right now. The show is no longer just me in a room chatting with myself. Justine is now in front of the mic as opposed to behind it telling me which bits I needed to change. In recent months the show has grown in its reach and there are so many more of you listening which is fantastic but we've also found more people have reached out to us with their own interesting voices and stories and these are the people that we'd like to share with you. Some good examples of the ways in which we've changed the format of the show recently are our fabulous interview with the author LJ Ross. <laughs> That's what brought you onto the show. Still excited about that. <laughs> I just had to find something you really liked to get you in front of a microphone. Um, another example, talking to Tony Harrington about how they were putting the bid together for the Durham uh, 2025 City of Culture bid. But there's even your annual folklore episodes at Halloween and Christmas. Yes, which I really, really liked. And they were probably the first attempt at slightly changing the format, but they were really, really cool. And we're definitely doing more spooky stories at Halloween. Anyway, the point is we're expanding the remit of the show. We're not going to just focus on the past, but we won't be leaving those stories behind, don't worry. We've just got loads more that I want to share with you. From German bombers over the Wandsbecht to the opening of the Technical College in Ashton to then shows like tonight's episode. In this episode, we talk to two North East women, Jojo, who is the founder of Worky Ticket Theatre, and Alice, a research fellow at Newcastle University. Yeah, we got to do this over coffee, which was nice for a change. Lots of clinking. Yeah, well, we should probably say that as well, that um, in the background of this, it was recorded live, and there's not many episodes because of the pandemic and all sorts of other things, of the podcast that we've yet had the opportunity to go out with a microphone and sit down and interview people. So listeners haven't really been subjected to the background ambiance um, in our episodes, but you're going to be in this episode. So we recorded this, where were we when we recorded this? At the Northern Stage Theatre. Yep, at the Northern Stage Theatre, which Dad tells me uh, in his day, so the late 70s was just called the Newcastle University Theatre. <laughs> As he put it, that, where you go, Northern Stage? I think, yeah, Northern Stage. When, when I explained where it was, he went, Oh, that was just the University Theatre in my day. Um, well, it's a posh-looking building. It's really cool. And the cafe was really nice, and they did a really good cappuccino. 
but we met at the northern stage because that is where worky ticker theater are putting on their latest production called magnolia walls which we're actually going to go and see uh this week yes we will be there on friday night that's our friday night out which and it and it sounds really good and you're going to hear a lot about it in this episode um so we, we got we got through there. It was chucking it down with rain. Do you remember? Absolutely throwing it down with rain. We got sat down. Um, Georgia was there first. Alice joined us after a meeting that she was in. So we will um, we will cut into this interview just a couple of times, partly to introduce Alice when she turns up, so it doesn't just sound a bit odd that there's another voice suddenly kicks in. But first up, we're talking about um, well the actual company, aren't we? We we asked Georgia what worky ticket was all about didn't we yeah so it's a bit about her background and what inspired her to set up the theater company um and a bit of an overview about the different types of people that she has had opportunity to work with yeah because their remit is not to tell to give too much away already but their remit is to try and find voices that perhaps aren't represented female voices. female voices yeah um in the northeast and give them a voice through well, art um, and drama, and it's really cool. Uh, so we will play the first clip, and then we will cut back in and explain the second clip. Enjoy hearing from Jojo all about Worky Ticket Productions. So I'm Jojo Kirtley, and I'm the artistic director of Worky Ticket Theatre Company. Um, it sounds really posh, but um, I think it just goes with the territory calling it artistic director. Um, but we, I do everything from the admin, finance side of stuff for Worky Ticket to um, writing and producing the plays, and obviously this podcast as well. Yeah. We're female-led, which is quite unusual in the northeast. Um, obviously, there's other female-led theatre companies, but. I don't think this female-led theatre company in North Tyneside, so that's kind of what, where we're coming from. And what we do is we work with groups of women, usually women, um, sometimes we work with men as well, we're not against men, <laughs> as everyone thinks, um, but we work with groups of women and we tell their stories. Um, sometimes they perform and other times we get actors to perform the characters that we create. And was it intentional that it's a female-led company? Yeah, very much so. Um, I have been working in Manchester for f- 15 years as a teacher. I moved back to uh, Newcastle and I've really struggled to find work um, as a writer. I'd been, you know, I'd set myself up in Manchester. I had a career where I was writing, I was producing, and I, I just found it you know, I'd had a, not a reputation as such, but people kind of knew who I was. I was working for a theatre company, and when I moved back to the northeast, there was kind of a lot of closed doors. And I think that's because obviously nobody—it's—it's it's hard to get into. It's an industry that's you know hard to get into. Nobody knew who I was. I also was a lot older. I wasn't starting from being like a graduate. Um, I started writing when I was a lot older as well. I think when you have time out as well, is a you know maternity time out or if you're caring for somebody like I've been doing too it's hard to get back into this kind of industry as well so I've moved back here and then I thought you know what I want worky ticket to like embrace all that so a lot of the actors or actresses if you like that we employ 
might have struggled to get back into the industry because they've had time out. So it sort of runs through the whole of work your ticket that this idea is, you know, helping support women with employment as well. So that's the kind of backbone of it. I had moved back to the northeast, which is where I'm obviously from. You can hear in accent. Um, but I moved back because I had, was in quite an abusive relationship and I'm, I, I'm not, not divulging too much here. And what happened was I wanted to write about that. And so the first play that I wrote for Worky Ticket was about my experiences around coercive control, which at the time, there wasn't that many people writing about it or you know, talking about what had happened to them. I think people were still quite ashamed five years ago. you know. Um, so I started to, to write about those kind of themes and that's why one of the reasons why we called it work, why I wanted to call Work Your Ticket work, or Walk Your Ticket as my granddad used to call this when I was little um, was because I wanted to write about you know, a lot of things that weren't, I wasn't seeing on, you know, maybe I was seeing it on TV but I wasn't seeing it when I was going to the theatre, real people's stories around issues that were kind of taboo. We worked with a group of female veterans, um, and I think that was in 2018, 2019, I forget the dates, because the <laughs> pandemic just messed <laughs> just with everybody's heads, didn't it? Yeah. So we worked with them around their experiences of being in the, the military, and that was one of the main things that they were seeing to us all the time. Like We were doing workshops with them, and then we were taking their stories and writers were writing like their stories um, and that was on at the exchange and all shields and they were just seeing us how like cathartic it felt and I because at the very very beginning of every project I'm really honest and I'll say I've been there I know how hard it is to tell your story to get up there and tell it that's why we give them an option you can perform or we can depending on the actual funding as well we could get actors to perform those kind of things so yeah I think they find it it empowers them, you know, we're giving them a platform for them to have their say. And I think a lot of the groups that we work with, they don't have that opportunity because they're unheard stories. That sometimes we work with groups of women that other people don't want to work work with or, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing where I think they feel completely empowered when they recognise their own stories. Just before the pandemic hit, we did a project in Amble with Women's Workshop, which is like one of my favourite places. And we worked with a group of women there who were quite, um, they, some of them were disabled, some of them were a lot older, um, and they, some of them had never ever got up and performed before. And we then did another project last year with them when we were just coming out of the pandemic called Savage Daughters. And they came back and performed again, some of them. So it's, you know, it's, it's just given them the confidence to do that. And I think that's important as well. Mm. You know, drama should be for everybody. And I think sometimes this industry is really difficult. It, it's got closed doors, not just for people who want to get into this industry, but for everybody. It's a hard, you know, hard to access sometimes. So I think, you know, anyone can get up and perform. That's what I truly believe. Apart from me, I don't want to ever do that. <laughs> um, I don't do that. Um, but yeah, I think anyone can, do, and it's just having that confidence and giving that confidence. So the workshops that we do are all around support and you know, whoever, the participants who we're working with and getting their confidence and their self-esteem up and giving them the knowledge and the performance skills to do that as well. I mean, sometimes we work with groups that already exist. So at the time I was working with Women's Workshop anyway, um, 
the female veteran stuff, women warriors, that was that was just it was mad how that happened. I was on I was in a mental health conference in Durham and I'll never forget it. I saw this post-it note that said, What about female veterans? And I, I drove all the way back home to Backworth thinking, Well, what about female veterans? I've never thought about that before. How can I call myself a feminist and be totally excluding those kind of women? You know, I'm not I can't be a feminist, you know, I was like questioning me on and that post-it note literally changed like the way I thought a lot about different groups of women that we should be working with and accessing you know and I just from there we just we worked with different veteran charities which was quite difficult at times because a lot of veteran charities don't work with just women so um, and we got a group of these which advertised through social media we worked with these veteran charities and we got this lush group of um, female veterans and I mean one of them ended up working well two of them ended up working on the project themselves mm-hmm. it's like showing you know showing the performers how to stand properly um, like a movement coach and the other one was a photographer so she came in she's actually Denise she's actually going to be our official photographer on the next project as well so yeah things that came across straight away sitting across the table from Jojo is how genuinely passionate she is about the work she does but also the individuals that she works with and I think at all levels and that came across right throughout the interview but certainly just in that first bit I mean I feel like we sat down um you know we ordered our drinks and then after that we didn't miss a beat in the conversation she just she has this full history to the theatre company and to the work that's led her to this point that she was really generous in sharing with us and you know to to mention her own personal connections to some of these things um I thought she was very gracious um I really love as well that she talks about empowering individuals and that she's given women who feel like they they don't have much to offer and you know why why would I get up in front of people and I'm not a performer she gives them the confidence to feel empowered to feel um worthy I guess of standing up in front of people and sharing their own voices you know rather than her telling stories on their behalf and I I like to imagine the buzz that those women must get that do feel brave enough to stand up in front of an audience you know some of these women have been through traumatic um ordeals Mm -hmm. I guess in the life and this is a way of them taking back control yeah and I I I thought it was really interesting that she you know she says she she spoke to her about not wanting to be on stage herself she prefers to give those people their voices you know or amplify their voice perhaps is the best way to think about that and another wonderful thing and I know you and I talked about it on the walk back to the car afterwards um you know it's more than just gathering stories and putting some women on stage but she's actually supporting women with employment yeah and if you think some of these women will be single mothers um you know what greater gift is there than something which is going to transform their lives yeah i think it was brilliant um the next bit that we're going to play was um a, a little bit about a podcast that they put together so because they're a theatre company they were hit hard like every theatre company was during the pandemic 
I mean, if you imagine a theatre company, they kind of need to be on stage, don't they? And I, another thing that I thought was fantastic about her and how just her energy carries projects forward uh, was that they saw the pandemic not as something that was going to grind them to a halt. Um, she found an opportunity within that to still do what she was doing. And they created a, a it's called Woman Up podcast, and it's only a few episodes long. And I just happened to discover it quite by accident and listen to these episodes, and I swear, it's no word of a lie, they're incredibly emotional, and I, I mean, I shared them on various social media platforms, but I really think absolutely everybody would benefit from listening to those podcasts. What they did was, they took various experiences of women during the very first lockdown of the pandemic, from March onwards, and they communicated with them, pulled their stories from them, and then turned them into dramas, short radio play dramas as a podcast. And they're just, some of them are extremely relatable and others are just so harrowing in the experience to just put yourself in somebody else's shoes during something we think we all experienced. But then to realise that your experience was completely different to somebody else's. It's incredible. So it's really lovely for, for Jojo just to talk about the process they went through in turning women's stories from the pandemic into drama so we're going to play that a little bit now for people the, the podcast after whole man's up to that was we were kind of going what we're going to do we've gone into lockdown i was pregnant um we had already just discovered that I was pregnant, so we were already going, oh my God, Joel's pregnant, what are we going to do? Um, you know, how am I going to get maternity leave and all that kind of stuff was going on? And then it was like, oh, we're going into lockdown. And I wanted to have a look at how we could still work. So that obviously that's, you know, and I think podcasts were getting very popular during the pandemic and lockdown. But then... What was really important for me, for Woman Up, was that just like the group that we're working with, Women's Workshop, we discovered that in the archives in the northeast, a lot of the archives don't have women's stories in. We'd already worked with Tyne and Wea Museum on a project in South Shields um, with a group of women there, and that was all archived um, very early on in work with tickets sort of history we'd done that and then we worked with these group of women in Anvil and they would, would basically just ask them what do Northumberland women really want so from there we started to go like looking archives because they wanted to they wanted to work with like suffragette stories and when we looked in different archives the stories were all written by men and it was like hang on a minute you know and I think I wanted to to kind of think well actually in a pandemic my maternity rights were being taken off us you know I was not getting the maternity support that I, sh I should have had um, we were hearing horrific stories about domestic abuse and um, we worked with Newcastle Women's Aid quite a lot and I was just thinking what are they going through the women that work there and the women that were trying to access that too um, we were hearing horrific stories around Black Lives Matter you know, um, so there were all these things that were going on and I just thought, I feel like I need to create a project that is going to 
grasp onto this heritage or heritage if you like and create her story so that we can see the pandemic through women's voices and um, from the northeast as well so that was what i thought was really important we just did this cheeky bid the arts council rejected us um so we did this bearing in mind that we were getting loads of rejections because we'd started applying for money in january not knowing a pandemic was happening so all of our work was just gone so i just applied for the heritage fund who were amazing and like rang us up they've been so supportive and they just love this idea of like creating this you know and obviously the idea for the, the woman up um podcast is to then take that and accession that into an archive which is definitely going to happen now so when I've had a conversation with you earlier um, we were in Shua but the feminist archive in London which is in Bishopgate library they were accessioning all of the information including notepads and our lesson plans because we did loads of workshops with different groups we our accession all that into an archive and they're really excited about it and it's it's going to be really good because we're going to go down to London and we're going to have an event to do that and they're doing loads of question and answers and we also got funding from Comic Relief to create a film called Her Primal Scream which was created from we, we sent out hundreds of surveys to, to women and literally from all the survey answers I created this like film that we had to then film socially distanced <laughs> all the madness that went with it so that's going to be screened and then obviously we're going to talk about the podcasts and the accession and of all that material so that I just keep thinking like in you know I had a little girl during the pandemic and I just keep thinking like in hundreds of years time do you know what I mean her like my great 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 granddaughters will go oh look that's my great you know so that's what's really exciting about it as well and capturing voices at a moment in history that we're already moving on from very yeah. quickly but actually is going to define over the next 30 40 years and capturing stories that yeah. are real and, and incredibly valid on their own i was just going to say you must feel particularly having a daughter now incredibly proud of the legacy that you're creating mm. I mean, I think it was really important as a mom of boys because I think yes. that's influential as well. But I, I do, under, yeah, I understand, I get that as well. Because obviously, like, I don't know, I just think it, it went in with the actual, you know, with the actual, um, we're, what, what we were trying to do, it kind of then, when I found out I was having Luna, it, it just it made sense as well, you know? And I think because we were archiving it in a way where we'd already knew that there was just nothing in different archives, you know? To actually archive is just something special. Yeah. So, yeah. Because those podcasts, oh, okay. I, I honestly thought they were fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> I think the first one I heard was um, the oh, um, Nana's Experience one. And More hugs for Nana Henny. I was nearly in tears driving into work listening to that. Just... It's really funny because my partner's a, a builder and he was like listening to it <laughs> he was making everybody in his van listen to it you know um, and that's what I loved hearing I love hearing those stories that people are listening to it who probably wouldn't yeah. go to the theatre yeah. um, you know and, and obviously they were going is that what happened you know um, yeah so Mohawk Sonana he was 
what I, I'd written that because um, my nana's in her 90s and it was just really upsetting to, like, she's, you know, she's on her own. And now we, we were going around and standing outside of her house. She knew I was pregnant. She couldn't touch my pregnant belly. And don't get me wrong, I don't want anyone to touch my pregnant any, uh, belly, but I think my nana touching it would have been mint. You know, knowing that there's a girl there, you know, I think that was something really special to her. And... Um, yeah, so we were standing outside, like, performing for her, like, singing to her and all those kind of things. Um, and I was just thinking about how lonely it must have been for older people who were on their own, or just people who were on their own in general. Um, but also, I wanted to work in that, like, the maternity stuff. Um, and there was just a lot of stuff that she was saying to me, because obviously she's watching the TV, obsessing on her own, because no one's, you know, obsessing with the news, like everybody else was watching the briefings. And I think she was thinking, what's going on? Yeah. Like, my granddaughters, you know, like, have things changed? And that was the kind of question that I wanted to ask within the play, like, you know, have things changed for women? And because when we're going to a pandemic, is this what happens to women? You know, we were, we were hearing stories. So we did loads of workshops, online workshops, and then we sent out a survey, and then we talked and interviewed with loads of different women. So we talked with sex workers in South Shields, we talked with the chief exec of Newcastle Women's Aid, you know, we talked to a Black Lives Matter activist. So there was loads of different women that I spoke to. And the idea was to then create these audio plays um, out of it and we've still got loads of material unfortunately we didn't get funding we didn't get the extra funding to do more plays which is what we wanted to do we only got it for one set of plays but you know we never know in the future and mm. um, we'll, we'll keep trying but you know having all that access to speak to women was amazing but it was just so overwhelming and I, I wasn't quite prepared for it like I, I literally thought I was you know um but I was going through it as well, you know, and hearing these stories, like, we, people, women were miscarrying on their own in hospitals, you know, and it, it, it's easy to say, oh, you know, and obviously men were going through stuff as well, we're all going through everything together, it was really awful, but actually those are really unique experiences that only women can go through, you know, and I, and I think that's what was massive, um, that you, we were hearing those stories or... We were hearing stories that people were saying, yeah, but more men are dying, but that meant that more widows were being left, you know, to cope with it. Um, and again, the maternity stuff really hit home for me because that was actually happening to me. Um, and the, there was just so much that came out of, of woman up and, and also, you know, that that's what created the plays. So there was that play and also we talked to a lot of key workers, which is why Sarah Hughes, her play, was just all about kind of like how they were affected and how they were trying to... We talked to a young woman who was like autistic and living on her own for the first time and, and that sort of influenced Sarah's play. So we tried to capture as many experiences as possible. Um, so those plays, and I think there's like one episode, isn't it, where we're just talking like I am now mm -hmm. <laughs> about it, but there was so much more material. Um, so we're going to actually accession the whole of the material into the, um, all the interviews, everything that we've got, even T-shirts that we got made <laughs> or and that we wore is all going to go in the archive. So it, that's what's good about it. So even though you only get to hear three plays, there's, there's so much more... Um, 
you know that's going to be accessioned as well. Well, it was the maternity subject yeah, that you replayed it last night. To you, yeah, so. you mentioned it to me first of all, saying that it's um, really unique that something like that was covered. Obviously, it was unique in itself that it was during a pandemic. Mm. Um, but the fact that you were representing all of these different women in different roles going through that, and I guess because you thought I'd be able to relate to it. I mean, we had James before the pandemic. He was 18 months when we went into lockdown, but I was a first-time mum, and I was just thinking, I know you mentioned a few times saying, well, some first-time mums said, well, we didn't know any different. And I thought, oh my God, I, do you completely take for granted the service that you do get when it's running as smoothly as it should? Yeah. Then you think about young women who are first-time mothers, single mothers yeah. in a pandemic, not seeing the midwife, not getting mm. those routine appointments, it just... I think what hit home for me is that, you know, in one sense, you know, it was horrible what I was going through, but I'm privileged in terms that I've got a really supportive partner, you know, um, we didn't struggle as much for money as what a lot of women that we were talking to were struggling, um, and, and I think that helps a lot, you know, so that's what I was upset about, I wanted to capture it, but again, you have to, it's sensitive around it. I mean, who wants to talk about something that's happening at that time? You know, so I, that's what I was really conscious of. And again, talk, going back to stealing stories, I'm really conscious that I don't want to do that and not give something back. Um, but I think a lot of the women that we were talking to, like, there was a brilliant story that came out of it that we didn't write about and that we, we haven't talked about, but I can talk about here. There was a, so family court was being done via Zoom. So a lot of um, abusers were being transported <laughs> into, you know, all these survivors of abuse. You know, they were being transported back into their like living rooms. You know, and I just think, you know, obviously we just talked to women about that, but it that is just unbelievable that nobody actually thought that was okay. I know things had to be resolved. You know, yeah. And I mean, so we were talking, it, there wasn't just one, there was like, there was a group of women who came forward to talk about that. And they were just saying, like, they were so traumatised that we couldn't do any work with them at the time. So that's something that we're thinking about doing in the future. And I was just like, how is that even possible that nobody thought that that was okay? You know, these very violent, um, aggressive, the stories that we were hearing, very violent, aggressive, manipulative men were being transported back into the, the living rooms. Also, the fact that the children, bearing in mind when you do go through family court, which I've been in that scenario, and it's horrendous, you know, anyway, you're told not to speak to the children about it. Kafka tell you. And there you are. The, ch the child is being homeschooled in the next room, knowing that their, their, their mum is there, you know, so all those things that I just couldn't believe were happening, that, you know, were happening to women in the Northeast. I mean, obviously globally it was probably happening as well, but just that we were finding out. And I think the food banks, you know, the Marcus Rashford thing, all that kind of stuff, like, we, there was a lot of women talking about how they, they were trying to access food banks and struggling to pay bills, a lot of single parents. And I think... What I sensed from it is the frustration of women in the North East. All the women that I was talking to were just frustrated. And that's, you know, going back to that more hugs for Nana Hinney, I wanted to capture that in that play, you know, how frustrating it was that 
in a pandemic we weren't going actually let's what can we do to support each other we were just and now obviously it's even more frustrating thinking that people were partying that we're in power and creating the rules you know and it, I think it's going back to that everyone's got a story about that you know how that it's affected them and it, it, honestly I, I could break my heart looking at Twitter of people saying that they'd lost family members and all those things that were happening where they were being restricted from seeing them and I think this is another layer of it as well that we were all going through a massive turmoil a trauma if you like and I think to think that an actual you know group of people who were in charge of the country weren't doing yeah. what they should have been doing or not abiding by the rules when we were all doing that you know and go back to me and that my nana who was on her own and we were like waving at her and she didn't even hold Luna until she was six months I just wanted to capture all of that not just because it was personal but because I thought it was it's an important moment in time that I feel should be forever archived if you like Well, I think that probably gave people a little bit more information about what those podcasts were about. Um, and, and it was they were just fantastic. I really cannot recommend them enough. You listened to one of them with me, didn't you? Because I, I wanted you to hear that. Yeah, you were, um, you were quite keen for me to listen to basically Jojo sharing her experience of maternity services mm. during lockdown. And like I say, you wouldn't... As much as we know the NHS was stretched you wouldn't have expected a maternity department to have been so affected, you mm. know. In that episode, she talks about people who have, are experiencing pregnancy for the first time and don't understand that actually they have missed very routine scans, which are just given, mm. you know, your, mm. your 20-week scan, for example, which for many people is very special. Um, for a lot of people, they choose to find out the gender. Mm. Um <laughs> Are you just remembering that? Yeah, sorry, just just completely... (laughs) And, you know, missing that because, well, they just couldn't offer the service. I just, I think it's bizarre and it's not something I would ever have considered. And I kind of, I don't know, I think the the world divides very easily into um, I'm angry about this and I understand this. And I think it's quite easy to sort of say that those women's experiences um, must have been marred in some way is that the right word mm. um by by all of that happening but i i guess the reality is you know nobody knew what a pandemic was going to be like and the nhs one has to hope the individuals within the nhs just did the best they could in the middle of something that we had no real no experience of and uh, before but it that doesn't change i guess the impact that that would have had on so many women who must have gone through I just think of, of, of individual moments that I shared with you mm-hmm. um, and then imagine that done under the pressure of actually you can't go along. It's only you on your own. Um, it might have to be via Zoom now. And just all that must have created so much stress for women. And we were lucky because we had, you know, a very, very happy outcome. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I, the, 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 I, I mean, Georgia talked about it a little bit, but the, the trauma, I can't even... I can't get my head around what that must have felt like for women who had either very traumatic births or the worse. You know, you know that must have just been heartbreaking, unbelievably so. We 
I mean, there was a lot to talk about in this. And, and one of the reasons we were there was to talk about Magnolia Walls. Um, and we talked for a long time about all sorts of things because Georgia is just one of those people that's got so much to say and it's lovely to listen to her. Do you want to introduce the, the, the last bit of the of the interview with her about the show? Uh, yes, so we, we did spend a long time talking to Jojo about all kinds of things um, and then Alice was able to join us, uh, Dr Alice Cree, who is a research fellow at Newcastle University and she um, very eloquently mm. introduces herself um, in this episode, so thank you very much Alice and also thank you for the flat white much appreciated. <laughs> yes, you might have sort of heard in the background of the last interview set, um, <laughs> Alice had turned up whilst we were talking. So there was a bit, a bit. Well, you and Alice went off to go and get a coffee whilst we carried on talking. Yeah. Uh, yes, but Alice has been working with Jojo on putting together the Magnolia Walls production. Um, you know, this is a field that Alice already works in, uh, and she's leading the research. I guess that has fed into the dramatization. Um, that Jojo's put together. Um, you did get the sense, or I, I certainly got the sense when we talked to them that they are very much a collaborative oh, yes. uh, unit. Yeah. Um, they they obviously listen very carefully to each other, and I think Jojo respects certainly the research because obviously it comes down to the individuals. But mm. I think Alice mm. also respects um, the more artistic delivery of those stories as well. I, I genuinely I thought it was quite wonderful because. I don't know, you don't imagine an academic project that has such a creative outflow to it. You know, and the outcome is a really creative thing. Because I, um, I asked Alice and Jojo that question, well, was the play always the intention? Because I honestly thought maybe somewhere along the line, these two people had somehow connected and mm-hmm. then they said, oh, I really, um, I'm really interested in your research. You know, as a feminist, that sounds like a really interesting topic. Can I turn it into a play? And the answer was no. This was the pro. This was the project was to have this kind of really artistic outcome to it, um, which we are going to see on Friday. I, and I know yeah. we didn't, or at least I don't remember explicitly answering, asking the question. Sorry, and we did talk briefly about military wives, but I mm. almost wonder, was it a response to the military wives effect? You know, yeah. because they they wanted to show um, a reality. A reality, yeah. yeah. They wanted to yeah. show other people's truths, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to play that interview for you now and you can hear from Alice how her research project is transformed into this stage production which you can see this weekend and I'll share some information about that at the end. Enjoy. So I'm a research fellow at Newcastle University in the School of Geography, Politics, Sociology. Um, And I'm working with Jojo on this big project with military partners. Um, So it's funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. I've got to get that in. (laughs) (laughs) They're paying for it. Yeah, otherwise I'll get an email. Um, And it's it's basically um, a large-scale two-year research project that's looking at the experiences of military partners um, and essentially how war and military conflict kind of play out in the spaces of the home and personal relationships um, and also some of the kind of bigger impacts of military service and what it means to be a military partner Um, what it really means you know beyond the kind of the representation that we're often given through things like the military wives choir and stuff you know Um, so looking at some of the more challenging um, kind of realities around that life so what we've done over the last two years, so it started in August 2020, which was obviously the middle of the pandemic, um, 
and we, when we got the money for this project, um, I mean, I put the bid in in 2019, so we had no idea that it was going to end up being done in a global pandemic. So we had to move everything online, so all of the workshops were done online. We've, um, we've interviewed about 38 partners from across the country. Um, we've done one-to-one -one interviews, and then we had a series of theatre workshops with them over, it was last summer um, that we did all those. And then out of that, um, mostly Jojo, with a little bit of input from me, we've written the play, Magnolia Walls, um, which is going to be performed at Northern Stage at the end of June. So, Just where we're now, we're at Northern Stage now. So. Yeah, yeah. So what are the... the the surprising themes from that or the really interesting stuff mm. or the things you didn't see coming is there's a few things we didn't see coming didn't yeah we? your idea is probably different to mine <laughs> probably well. yeah true um i think for me because part of what we were doing really at the beginning of the project um was thinking about how specifically war like actual armed conflict plays out in the home like what are the consequences of that through ptsd is there a kind of element of um violence that somehow plays out but actually what what we found what I found really strongly from it um, and Hannah who also works with me on the project would probably have a different take as well but is there's actually what's going on in military homes is often kind of it's military violence by other means it's these kind of the ways in which military life and everything that's wrapped up in being in the military has this kind of actual, actually really detrimental impact on their family life in ways that you don't necessarily expect. And that's not everyone's experience, of course. But for a lot of um, the people who we worked with, they were talking about things like their sex lives changing, their partners come back um, from deployments, whether it's to a kind of a violent war zone or any other kind of deployment, and they're changed in some way, and they've got to figure out how to live with these people again. Um, some of them have said that they felt like they were sharing a bed with a complete stranger now. And those are things that you often don't think about. But then there's also the things like a lot of these, I mean, they're mostly women, just because of the, the makeup of the armed forces in this country, but it wasn't all women. Um, mostly women who have sacrificed their careers. Often they've had really high-flying, amazing careers as graphic designers or doctors um, and they've just given up their careers to to follow their partner um, or to support them because militaries don't function unless you have someone who's willing to do the unpaid labor like childcare we're looking after the house and home emotional support all of these things um, so I think I mean <laughs> surprising but also not surprising those things that came out but I think it's worth bearing in mind Yes, of course, like, there's going to be people who have positive experiences as well, and there's a lot of good things that come out from being in an armed forces family. But people don't realise that it's not just tough on the person who's in the services. It's extremely difficult for family members often, and there's so many things that they go through that people don't realise. Yeah. I don't know what you think came out. I agree with everything you're saying. The other thing that I was thinking about that came out that I was really surprised with was how... I mean, I wasn't really surprised, you know, when a group of women get together and they all hit it off. The, the friendships, you know, um, but the friendships that they make and how they're made as well. So, like, we, they were talking a lot about um, how you you can be so close to someone and it's really intense because you're on a patch with them or, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like you're just Facebook friends, you never see each other again, you know, and it's that those kind of things that has to... 
I think really impact your mental health that as well, you know, because friends are so important. Um, and if you've got like a really close friend and then all of a sudden they've been taken away from you, um, the play is quite a uniquely written play as well <laughs> because everything's had to be social distance. We wanted a chorus, um, like a Greek tragedy, but we also wanted to use Brechtian techniques because we wanted people to really think about the actual subjects. So it's, it's sort of a double play where the chorus is all of the military wives themselves and we've had to film them. And a husband. And a husband, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we've not excluded any of the men, but yeah, so we've kind of recorded them via Zoom. So that and their voices are going to be used throughout the play, um, some of them singing, yeah, as well because that you know, we've talked a lot about military wives choir, um, so that there's that, and then there's two professional actors that are going to be acting out the, the characters that we've created from, you know, the the stories that we were told as well. So that's that's what's going on on stage with with the film. So yeah, so it's quite a different kind of take on it. It's a really difficult thing to try and translate effectively 38 people's voices and experiences into two characters. Um, and I think Jojo's done a really amazing job in terms of, I think it's really cleverly woven together how you've got this main story that's happening on stage but also the bits that the chorus are feeding in every other scene basically, mm. isn't it? Are just most of it is extracts from their actual interviews and from the workshops you know they're really having that they're they're communicating the fact that there's more than just these two experiences there's all of these different things that are going on um so i think i think it's worked out really really well to do something that's impossible to do i mean there's so many things as well that came out of the research that we just couldn't get into the play you know one of the big things um that we, we just weren't able to get in that we, we really would have loved to was this idea of being in the dark about everything mm. you know that when their partners are deployed for example that's a big one never actually knowing if they're all right if they're okay especially for example submariners partners submariners can be gone for months and months and months and they'll barely hear mm. from them um so you don't know if they're alive or dead often um and yeah this kind of the actual feeling of just being surrounded by darkness and not knowing what they're doing where they are how they are um but even when they're at home actually that kind of experience of feeling like you don't fully know this other side of their life um i think that was a big we talked about getting a scene in on that but it's just there's only so much you can do in two hours <laughs> do you feel like it's come out that there's kind of some unwritten expectations on military wives or partners about you know the type of person they need to be or what is expected of them in that role. Hundred percent. Yeah. So still now, I mean, it's 2022, you know, and they're still kind of expected to behave a certain way. Do you feel you like know? it's quite regressive rather than progressive? I'm just thinking, you know, typical family model. People back 50, 60 years. Um, you know, mm. female domesticator. The, the military is one of those really slow-moving institutions that's actually quite far behind everyone else. And I think that's fair to say. I don't think that... I mean, probably the military would disagree. Yeah. But, but it's true. I mean, um, there is still this assumption that families and partners are basically just going to put up with 
put up with anything that the military tells them to do. That in, these are people who are civilians, you know, a military wife is a civilian, yeah. but they're still expected to behave and to kind of abide by military rules. And what um, other job? What other job would you have to do that? You yeah, know? it's just you know, if you marry a teacher, you marry a teacher. You don't have to behave a certain way. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I just I've never I kept like racking my brains thinking, is there another job in the world? I mean, okay, maybe if you were married to the prime minister, but they, you know, that's a different. Wow. <laughs> yeah, every project that work you take it does. We want to be able to say to people, I bet you thought this, but actually this is what we're hearing from the groups that we're working with. Again, with Magnolia Walls, it, you just, I think, I've, I learned from that, you know, I learned from that experience. With Magnolia Walls, these women, like, no one had ever really spoken to a lot of the women that were, you know, about their experiences. Yeah, they thought they had nothing to say. Yeah. They thought they didn't have a story. There was a lot of that. Like, oh, well, I've, I'm, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not important. I don't have anything to say. But yet, the women that were seeing that, they, I found them the most interesting because they, that was their story that I wanted people to hear, you know, and so the characters that we created were kind of based on a lot of the, you know, like when I was looking at what personalities they would have, so Roxy's this rock chick, she, you know, she wanted to be the next, the Geordie Stevie Nicks, um, and she's, you know, got a beautiful voice and, you know, but then she got pregnant with twins and married this guy who uh, was in the army so it kind of stopped her from having that career um, and she would probably have been the one out of the two characters that would probably say I've got nothing to say I've just been a, I've just been you know like a military wife um, that's what she would have said and then with the opposite to that we've got Penn who's you know she's been in the, the Navy herself so we wanted to kind of represent the Navy as well and you know she was very educated from Plymouth you know that kind of character um, and she'd ex you know was going through a really tough time with it in her marriage you know and we wanted to explore the relationships as well that these women have with their partners and I think if someone is being trained in a certain way to go and work in conflict zones they're not going to come back and be okay, of course they're not. We know that now, you know. Um, and it kind of, I didn't want to write a play where we were blaming just the people that were doing that because that's, we need to take accountability as a society that we're doing that, that we're sending people to war zones, that there's still war, you know, wars going on. And I think that's what makes it really relevant, this play as well, because obviously what's happening right now, you know, um, I think it's important to explore that too and I hope that's what we did in a way that was sensitive and supportive of the women and their choices because you know we were saying before they didn't know when they got into it but when they did get into it if you're in love with somebody that's in the army you know we're not saying that's a bad thing and I didn't want them to think that we were criticizing them as well because you just fall in love with who you fall in love with, you know? And I think that's why we try to be sensitive around that as well. So we're not digging at the women, we're not digging at the, you know, the actual people who join the forces. That isn't what the play is about. It's about kind of looking at what we should be doing as a society when that does happen. You know, how can we support families? How can we support, um, you know, 
when people make those choices, what, what do we do as a society? I think it's kind of about opening up a conversation, mm. isn't it? Because that's, that's one of the really powerful things, I think, about the play and the way that Jojo's written it, is that these conversations are kind of happening between these two characters. So they've got, both got really different takes on... I mean, there's some similarities mm. between them. Um, in terms of their experiences and but they're kind of actually putting on stage and voicing the conversation that we hope the audience are going to have you know it's kind of like well who is to blame where do you put the blame for this violence and you know to what extent can you put the responsibility on the navy's shoulders or on his shoulders like it's one of the lines in the play is like have you ever thought that maybe he's just a dick you know (laughs) yeah Um, before before (laughs) Yeah. yeah So it's kind of, that's one of the things we try to do. We've not tried to come up with any answers. It's more about opening up these questions. We hope you found Jojo and Alice just as fascinating um, as Paul and I did when we were sitting talking to them. And I really hope that you can get a sense for their passion and their dedication Uh, to the project and also to the individuals involved in it it was really interesting what Alice was just saying there about hoping that the audience will start to ask questions and will discuss those questions because Paul and I had a real buzz walking back to the car um, after leaving the northern stage and we engaged in a bit of a discussion about actually who is to blame and where does the fault lie and just saying how interesting it was that you know this this is a discussion which we possibly would have never gotten into Mm -hmm. um Mm because you know we don't have any connections to the military um you know we might have watched the military wives well i watched a lot of film and discussed you know Um, whether or not that was a real representation but it was just very serendipitous i think that you found that podcast and that we were able to then I meet with so. the people yeah. in preparation for going to see their their production yeah i think what well, we both said when we came out that it was yeah, and we spoke about this right at the top of the show it was a, a, a really great example of how fortunate we are through the the podcast as more people are listening to it and people in different pockets of the northeast are hearing the show that this opportunity came up for us to go and just meet people that we would never normally have met be involved in an and in in an area of the arts that we're not involved in and wouldn't have known was even happening is the other thing and so I I genuinely felt it was a it was a treat for us but it's a privilege to be able to share some of that through the podcast and a real privilege to be able to say to people look if you don't have plans um I think it's on Friday and, and Saturday, Saturday yeah. if you don't have plans Friday and Saturday and you can get into Newcastle to where the university buildings are just opposite what used to be the Hancock and is now mm-hmm. called whatever it's called. We'll just call it the Hancock Museum. <laughs> the Great North Museum. Is that what it's I called believe. now? Right. Then get yourself to the Northern Stage and just go and see theatre that, by the sounds of things, and I'm sure we'll be proved right, is going to make you think, you mm-hmm. know, is going to engage you in a thought process where you're going to come out and have some deep discussions and some meaningful conversations with people. And I, I honestly am looking forward I'm really looking forward to that. Although, actually, before we go, one of the things I want to say was um, we say we don't have any relation to military families, but you have a friend who we met up with who I didn't know, but well, prior yes. to her career in education 
was married to a man a in the military. Wife, yes. And as soon as we said the name of the show that we were going to see and said, oh, they, Magnolia. They both looked at each other and they laughed. Yeah. Because um, they understood the reference straight away. They knew that, you know, it was a reference to barracks and... Mm-hmm. Um, the blandness of yeah. the films. That's what she said. You know, we moved from place to place and she said, I swear to God, the military must have a warehouse somewhere yes. bigger than an air hangar that's just full of magnolia paint. Because she said everything, everything from offices to um, houses was pla- painted with magnolia walls. But, you know, to end this with my English teacher hat on, Go for it. what a fantastic metaphor for clearly, um, you know, the, the underlying realities of being a military wife or a military spouse because um, it's anything but magnolia clearly wow. it's not as simple as one might think this is why this is why you know i take you to the theater to explain it all to me <laughs> <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening to the show um we're going to sign out there I will have posted the details, if you're watching this on Facebook, I'll have posted the details to the Northern Stage and the show and Worky Ticket uh, on there so you can check them out. Um, and if you can't see that, I will have put this hopefully in the podcast info as well uh, if you're listening to this through Apple or Google or Spotify. Uh, but if not, just Google Magnolia Walls Worky Ticket Productions Northern Stage. All right. Thank you to Alice and Jojo for giving up their time to talk to her on a very wet and rainy day that was. And thank you for listening. Stay safe and stay well, everybody. We'll be back very soon. <laughs> <laughs>